Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome back to another episode of New Retina Radio, uh, COVID-19 coverage. And tonight's title is, Can Clinical Trials Proceed? And I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Namrata Saroj, and we have an esteemed panel of experts with us from Boston and ophthalmic consultants of Boston. We have Dr. Jeffrey Heyer. From Mid-Atlantic Retina, Will's Eye Institute, we have Dr. Carl Regillo. And from Retina Consultants of Houston, we have Dr. Charles Wyckoff. Thank you all for joining us. So as we get started tonight, it is April 28th, 2020, and we have over 3 million cases of coronavirus worldwide. We've had over 216,000 deaths worldwide. In the United States, we just went over 1 million cases, and we have over 58,000 deaths. So there's no doubt that this is impacting us tremendously. So let's start off uh, tonight by talking to Dr. Jeff Heyer. Jeff, Boston's been tremendously hard hit by coronavirus. Can you just describe to us what life is like in Boston right now? Yeah, it's, it's almost like living in a ghost town. There, the all of the commercial establishments are shut down. The busy areas that when occasionally I drive down Newbury Street, which is a famous area of Boston, that at this time of year would be jam-packed. It's totally empty. When I drive in to work in the morning, Boston's notorious for horrible traffic. There's few cars on the road, even in the, the middle of busy traffic time. So it's it's very different. You know, we're in an area where we're seeing anywhere from 100 to 200 deaths a day still, and anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 new cases a day. So it's, it's, a, it's a very sobering reality. It's, it's hard to envision two months ago that we'd be in anything like this, and yet today, it's hard for us to remember when we weren't like this. Are, are hospitals overwhelmed or, or is there still capacity in hospitals? So fortunately, the social distancing has been very effective here. And while some hospitals have, have come close to capacity, none of them have been overwhelmed. So I practice in the Boston location, which is just a few blocks from Mass General. And they're, they still have capacity, Boston Medical Center, Tufts, they still have capacity. So a lot, most of the hospitals still have capacity and they've handled this remarkably well with the social distancing and the planning, but it's still pretty sobering. And what are things like clinically for you there? 50% uh, volume, are you doing any elective procedures whatsoever? So, so the clinical practice has been dramatically impacted. So OCB has 35 doctors, 25 optometrists, and 400 plus employees. We've actually furloughed 75 
percent of the employees. Um, the anterior segment doctors are usually in a day or two a week and see, you know, a handful, 10 to 20 patients. The retina doctors are in three to four days a week and seeing roughly uh, anywhere from a third to half of our patients. It's typically just injections and emergencies. There's very little testing. So, you know, I, I guess the only good side of this is my patients are ecstatic that the normal two and three hour waits are literally minutes. We've, we've coordinated clinics so patients come in, they pretty much get walked right into a room, their vision's checked. If they're stable, we tend not even to do OCTs. We set them up for injection and, and get them right out. And that's the large majority of patients. In terms of surgery, um, only emergency surgeries are going. So only detachments. Um, I did a one-eyed macular hole patient last week, but it, it's really emergencies or something that if you didn't do surgery in a short period of time, the, the patients could suffer. Carl, turning to you in Philadelphia, it was uh, a few weeks ago we had Sunir on with us and he described just the early stages of things. How are things now in Philadelphia? So our experience in Philadelphia is actually very similar to what Jeff described. Um, I think we were a little earlier in our peak. Uh, our system also, healthcare system, did not get overwhelmed. So we are able to handle it. Um, the clinical practice impact was very similar to what Jeff mentioned. The doctors are three to four days a week. Um, our clinical volume is way less than 50%. A few weeks ago, probably at its lowest, um, maybe even down to 30, 40% of our normal volume of patients seen clinically. And exact same thing as Jeff mentioned, we get them in, we get them out, we keep them separated in time and in space um, to adhere to all the um, recommendations put forth by all the organizations. Uh, and it's actually gone very smoothly. Uh, we've had really no issues within our practice, um, outbreak contaminations, uh, people getting sick and so forth. Um, so it's gone smooth. It's been, you know, it's a whole new world, uh, hopefully a temporary uh, new world, of course, but um, we're just starting to see things get better. In fact, we just had a, a practice meeting, you know, Normally, we have a practice meeting once a month. Our, our group is large, as you probably know. We're uh, over 20 retina specialists, and um, we're only retina. So um, we have a normal practice meeting once a month, but during COVID, it's been once a week uh, because things have been changing. We learn so much, um, and it's constantly evolving, um, and we're constantly tweaking and adjusting what we do in the clinic. I know we're going to talk about research. What we're doing in research in many ways parallels this. Um, but I think the worst was just about a week or two ago, both in terms of um, uh, the way it affected the city and the area in general and the way it affected our practice. Just last night, our last practice meeting, we talked about just like states and governors and counties are talking about the plan to open up. That's what we're now starting to talk about. We're starting to talk about, as Jeff mentioned, uh, a patient comes in, you're doing absolute essentials only, uh, very selective with testing, for example. It's no longer everyone just goes to the OCT machine, right? So um, now we're talking about, okay, we've handled this well. Uh, we have a, a grasp on the problem. We haven't had issues uh, administering patient care. And uh, now that the volume is starting to go up, 
uh, we now are going to make adjustments. We're going to bring back some of our furlough staff. In fact, uh, as of next week, we're starting to bring back, we furloughed about a little over half of our um, employees. We have uh, about 350 employees in our group and uh, we furloughed about half. We haven't laid off any, fortunately. And uh, the others uh, are working from home. Many others are working from home, all the back office and so forth. So we have the absolute minimum to handle the volume that we have. And now that the volume's going up a little bit, we're gonna start bringing some people back. So that's good news. Absolutely. Charlie, you were in a little bit of a different situation in Houston in that big metropolitan area, but there, nothing was really shut down from what we're hearing on the news. How was Houston's experience with coronavirus different? And then how was your clinical experience different? Yeah, fortunately, Houston and Texas at a broader level has been relatively spared from, from the situation that we've seen really play out first in Seattle and then in the Northeast which Jeff and Carl have been intimately involved with. We've had much fewer cases. I'm heavily involved with one of the hospital systems down here, and there was a lot of preparation a month ago. I'm expecting a large surge. You know, they were really truthfully expecting the hospital systems to be overwhelmed. Fortunately, that, that never came to pass. Who knows why? Maybe multifactorial, hopefully at least partially related to the sort of stay-at-home orders that were largely respected across Houston. It was amazing, just as Jeff described, to see the Houston urban sprawl that it is kind of grind to a halt. You know, almost all stores were shut down and, and lines outside of every grocery store and very few cars on the road. Just this week, we're beginning to feel that transition that Carl began to describe. I think that they were going through that transition a little earlier than the Northeast, just because we've had fewer cases. The hospital systems down here have been very transparent with the capacity that they have. They have plenty of capacity. There were a lot of um, uh, beds that were converted to ventilator beds and ICU beds in preparation again for that surge that were fortunately never needed and hopefully won't be going forward. Um, and so I think that there's a feeling in the community among the hospital administrators that there's plenty of capacity at this stage and, and there's general support actually for beginning to lose up. Now, how that plays out is still very much yet to be determined. Our governor just decided um, with, a, with a large group of people of the last couple of days that beginning this Friday, um, uh, they're allowing restaurants, other facilities to begin to open with the goal of being 25% capacity until right now, May 18th. And, and one of the metrics there is hospital COVID volume. And if the volume does not go up, the plan then is to increase to 50% um, uh, capacity for restaurants and other social, so, social outings. Um, movie theaters included are opening this, this Friday. So we'll see how that transition goes. From a clinical practice, it was very much similar to what Carl and Jeff described. Um, our volumes have been down anywhere from 40 to 70%, depending on the specific clinic um, and the specific doctor. Just over the last couple of days, just this week, we're beginning to see that volume increase. You know, we were definitely just what Jeff said, injection only, emergency only, minimal imaging. But now we're actually already beginning to look how to go beyond that um, and try to figure that out. I like Carl's point about spacing out in um, uh, separating in time and space. And we're doing the same thing. So just to give you some of the granularity of what we're doing, we're trying to call all of our patients ahead of time. Um, we have uh, staff that's able to do that because we're not seeing as many patients. We fortunately have not had to furlough anyone. Um, and we're trying to call all of our patients ahead of time to tell them what to expect. Because when they get to our clinic, um, uh, there's, a, there's sort of a, a station out in front of the clinic for those that are not in hospital settings because the hospital settings have their own sort of check-in zone. 
and where we ask each person a set of questions, we check their temperature, we give every patient a mask, and then we take turns allowing them to come into the clinic such that they can be separated. Um, very few chairs in the waiting room. We try to bring patients directly into a room when possible um, or have them wait in their car until it's their turn. Um, and then when they come in, sort of minimize everything just as the others have described and be as efficient um, as, as possible with all of the staff wearing masks um, 100% of the time. When our staff has lunch, when I have lunch, we try to isolate ourselves, go into a room by ourselves or stay at least six feet away from people, go out to their cars to eat. So we're trying to be meticulous about all the contact precautions. Um, unfortunately, we have not had any um, a staff that I know of at this point um, uh, convert to, to be uh, positive. Uh, we have had some close family members of staff convert, and that's been an interesting choice about how to, how to deal with that. Um, but fortunately, none of our staff have, have been sick at this point. But it feels like, you know, it's just a matter of time for all of us, given this trajectory. You know, I, I, I look forward to improved testing um, to see which of us have already been exposed and trying to figure out what that means. Surgically, just this week, we're beginning to open up some more of the routine surgeries. We're putting off all macular hole surgeries. I have a few scheduled this Thursday. It's my first regular OR day back in the last month. We've been doing retinal detachments, but that's basically it. And now we're beginning to increase as our surgical centers are allowing um, uh, more of the routine cases, again, on a, on a very gradual basis starting this week. John, right. if I can say something there, yeah, sure. Charlie and Carl have brought up something that's, that's going to be key. You know, we're, as we go forward, these, the clinics where we had weights are going to be an issue. And we're not going to have that luxury anymore of bringing in numbers and saying, hey, you know, we'll get to you. And we, we always try to minimize time in clinic, but now that isn't going to be a luxury, it's going to be a necessity. And so how we do that, how we maybe offset hours in clinic could be one thing. We've talked about it might be necessary to have weekend days where, so this separation of patients and space and time is very, very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can get to some of those suggestions towards the end of this, but the real purpose of this, uh, this podcast is really to discuss clinical research and how COVID has affected clinical research. And with that, I'd like to bring in my co-host who needs no introduction. Now, Murata, I'm going to turn it over to you uh, to talk a little bit about clinical research. Thanks, John. Um, I'm going to start with Jeff again. Jeff, how many of trials are you, were you involved with before the COVID situation took over? And how many of those trials are you still involved with? Sure. So right now, actively, we're in 20 plus trials. I, it's always somewhere right around the 20, 25 mark, sometimes upwards of 30. And, and prior to COVID, this was probably one of the most robust clinical trial periods I've seen in my career. And, and we've all been doing this a long time. So none of those trials have actually shut down there, but there's clearly been a difference. So the trials that are treating diseases with active edema, diseases like AMD, DME, those studies have continued and we've really been able to maintain probably 75 to 85% of those visits, but in a, in a very tempered manner. It's the dry AMD studies that have been extremely difficult for us. And when we looked at it, 
we were in several dry AMD studies and up to this point, we've been main, only been able to maintain about 20 to 25% of those visits. But we'll talk about, we have some steps that we're taking that should enable us to, to bring that back up. Thanks, Chad. So Charlie, for you, what proportion of your studies are maybe seizing enrollment, halting enrollment, or there's just been a delay in general? Yeah, you know, we're fortunately in a different environment um, uh, than, than Jeff, but we've been able to maintain about 80, 80 to 90 percent of our clinic visits for research. So we've been very fortunate in that regard for patients already in trials. And we can talk about the mechanisms of how we're doing that, conversations we're having with patients, who we bring in, who we uh, actively choose not to bring in. That's a really important discussion. Um, but then specifically your question, which trials are still actively you know, ongoing? All of the trials for which there are patients enrolled are still ongoing. None of the trials that I'm aware of, um, uh, certainly none of the ones that I'm involved with, have stopped um, completely delivering care. What has stopped is, is new screenings for many of the trials. So enrollment has paused for many of the studies um, and startup activities have also paused, at least the trials that were right on the edge of being ready to activate. Those activation dates are being pushed back. And then interestingly, some of the surgical trials have delayed the surgical time point uh, during the trials. There's a couple ongoing trials that are getting medical treatment and then they tr transition to a surgical intervention and they're, can, they're, they're pushing the timeline back for that surgical intervention, waiting for the, the, the environment to clear. Thanks, Charlie. So Carl, what's happening with Mid-Atlantic Retinas? Similar experiences? Yeah, um, very similar to what uh, Jeff and Charlie mentioned. Um, we also have about 20 or so uh, actively running studies um, and still do. In other words, just like the other guys have said, none have officially stopped or closed. Uh, they're still active. Um, new studies have uh, certainly, we've slowed down the process of, of uh, moving them along. Our IRB, uh, local IRB is still running, of course. Uh, everything's done by, uh, you know, a teleconference call now, but we're able to move forward with, with some uh, trials that have come our way. Obviously, they haven't started. Recruitment uh, into existing studies uh, has pretty much stopped. Uh, Jeff mentioned the dry studies. You know, just like in practice, we're trying to minimize uh, anything that's not absolutely essential. So the wet ND patients, of course, they need their treatments. They're going to get their treatments. We're trying to get the patients in. Of course, some patients elect not to come in um, so we're going to see some, some skipped or missed visits. There's no doubt about it. It's happening. Some of that's driven by the patient. Um, some of it, especially on the dry AMD side, as Jeff mentioned, where it's deemed not at the same level of being essential for a treatment. Um, in fact, our, our sponsors in, in the industry and the companies behind the trials have even suggested this and have made uh, adjustments and to allow for skipping a visit, for example. So keep in mind, we've been in the thick of COVID now for six plus weeks. Um, so uh, for a lot of these trials, patients are coming in more or less about well, on a monthly basis. And um, uh, skipping a visit for most of these studies, um, you know, hopefully again, for the ones that absolutely need the treatment, hopefully that doesn't happen. But in the greater scheme of things, especially the larger phase three studies, with so many patients in over one to two years, it's probably not going to make a big impact on the results. But um, if if this COVID situation, uh, the way it is now, persisted for another one to two months, then we're talking about two or three cycles of visits potentially missed or compromised. 
then that could affect results. I know we're probably going to get into that a little later, but um, right now, very similar to the clinical practice environment, um, we've, we've limited things to essential encounters. We've made the encounters very, very um, uh, streamlined. Um, about half of our research department has been furloughed, and those that can work at home are working at home. Interestingly, our regulatory specialist is probably our busiest and in fact busier than ever because I think, the, again, the industry is doing a great job of working with us, trying to figure out the best ways to keep our patients safe, keep the trial, the trial integrity um, um, it, it, at a good level here uh, so that things aren't compromised. And so um, there's amendments and tweaks and changes. So our regulatory person is, is adjusting and getting and keeping all this uh, you know, at play. So Jeff, what is the most, uh, what are the adjustments that have been made in the clinical trial procedures or visits that have helped you continue seeing these patients? So for the, the patients who are getting injections, what we're doing is we're minimizing a lot of the testing. So a lot of visits you'd come in and you, you might have contrast sensitivity and low luminance read, all sorts of different things. We're really taking those and only doing what's essential. So, you know, a visual acuity, an OCT, a slit lamp exam to make sure there's no inflammation. But anywhere we can limit those tests, we are to get them in and out significantly faster than they normally do. The dry AMD is a whole different story. And if you can just elaborate a little bit more on that. So as Carl said, the patients who have dry AMD don't necessarily appreciate the, the benefits of treatment the same way that the wet AMD patients do or the DME patients do. If they miss a visit, edema comes back, swelling comes back, they can bleed, their vision is impacted. The dry AMD, you don't see that. So a lot of our patients, rightly so, have been very concerned about coming in the clinic during COVID. So actually what we have instituted and it's it's so far this weekend will be our first time is we're actually bringing in dry amd patients one at a time on a saturday where the building's entirely closed so they'll have the study team the coordinators masked and unmasked the both investigators and the photographer will be there to take care of one patient, will dedicate roughly an hour or so to that patient, and then get them in and out, and then go to the next patient. So this Saturday, we're doing that for seven dry AMD patients. And, and all of these patients were very hesitant to come in otherwise, in fact, had, had said, you know, I'm just not comfortable. But when we proposed this approach to them, they were actually um, very, excited about coming in. And keep in mind, before COVID, our retention in dry AMD studies among all of our sites were really outstanding mm -hmm. because while the treatment isn't the same as it is for these edema type diseases, these patients are on a course where they know they're going to lose vision and they don't mm -hmm. have something to do for it. So when we say the treatment isn't as critical on a month to month basis, that's certainly the case. But if one of these treatment works, it's a huge benefit to these patients. So the, the study is important. The individual visits may not be as critical, but 
But when you look at missing not simply one visit or even two, but if these could easily, patients could easily miss two, three or more visits, finding ways to get them in and get them in safely and in and out quickly is critical. Charlie, can you comment on some of the things that you have implemented in your practice to address patient compliance and make the research staff comfortable as well? Yeah, absolutely. Again, very different environment, I think, than what Jeff and Carl are, are, are describing, just given the, the severity of the COVID situation in our, in our local environment. But I'll give you some of our granularity. So, you know, of course, in research especially, there's a lot of hands-on with every single patient, a lot of phone calls, coordinators and doctors and other patients on a, on a, on a, on a specific patient uh, first name basis. Um, but specifically in this situation, we're calling every single patient well ahead of time so they know exactly what to expect when they get to research. Um, we've transitioned now where every patient of ours in research has a high-end car service. So not Uber Health, not their friend driving them, not even a family member driving them. Um, but we use a high-end car service that cleans the cars, wipes every surface down between every patient, um, and then the driver is masked and the patient is masked before they get in the car to come to our clinic and they're masked the entire time, unless they're in a room by themselves eating or drinking at our office. So we are meticulous about that. We describe the whole process to them. Um, and having gone through that process, then of course, when they're in clinic, we minimize what we can and we make it as efficient as possible. Um, and given that situation, maybe 50 or 60% of patients say we really appreciate the phone call and completely understand and, and no problem. Again, very different geographic situation here in Texas. Now the other 30 to 40%, uh, maybe you know, 10% absolute numbers simply are not able to come in because they will live in a facility, for example, where if they leave for any reason, whether it's to go to a wedding or a funeral or my clinic or the grocery store, they are committing themselves to 14 days of isolation when they, um, and, and that, that's the policy for multiple living groups around us, retirement communities. And so situations like that, we've had discussions um, and most of the time we're recommending the patients not come in until those, until those restrictions are, are lifted, regardless of what the trial is, unless they're of course having an acute visual problem. Um, and then the, the, the rest of them, maybe 20 or 30 absolute percent are still very hesitant. And, and in those patients, it's, it's, it's a discussion. Um, and the patients that remember what it's like to have vision loss from their RVO or their DME or their wet AMD are much more likely to say, to, to ultimately decide to come in. Um, but we're very cautious with those discussions. The last thing any of us want to do here is, of course, quote unquote, force or inappropriately encourage a patient to come in when, when goodness forbid that they could get sick or we could get sick or something bad could happen. So we're very cautious in those situations. We often encourage um, the patients to let us talk to their family members, to their sons, their daughters, their spouses, to talk about the risks, the benefits. You know, the overarching theme that I would finish this comment with is, now, most of my patients do research for one of two reasons. One is for sort of personal benefit, um, and, and those can be obvious to us. Um, and in the dry AMD, I think that's the most challenging, of course, because in all the trials that we have now, they might be getting a sham injection, and they know that because they've been well-informed, um, and it may not even work because we don't have any approved drugs in this space. Um, and that's, and that, and that's a, a hurdle that has to be overcome for them if they do come in. But the other reason that almost every patient commits to doing these trials, which is a lot of time, is they want to give back, right? They have some personal reason why. They want to they help their family members. They want to help greater good. They want to help science. 
And I'm actually remarkably impressed by those conversations that I've had with patients specifically, both face-to-face in clinic and over the phone with patients that choose not to come in. Many of these patients will bring up those issues and, and they're heartfelt and they're genuine. And I'm seeing that in a very, at a very real level in a way that, that you know, we all talk about, but I had not really appreciated uh, in, until this situation where patients are like, you know, I want to know, is this going to hurt the data if I don't come in? And, and patients are, are really, they're interested in what their commitment means to the, to the data quality. And I've been impressed by that. That's very nice to hear. Um, all of you are not only principal investigators in multiple trials, you're also on steering committees that are advising the sponsors of these trials. So Carl, I'll start with you. Uh, what kind of things have the sponsors made an effort on that have helped you continue with clinical trials? Um, yeah, they've, they've done a lot and uh, they've been really good, of course. Um, you know, uh, everyone has the safety of the patients and our staffs at, in the very highest uh, priority here. Um, and everyone wants to see, as Charlie mentioned, you know, it's in, in Jeff too, the importance of these studies, everyone wants to see uh, the study integrity maintained and that we get answers that we need about potentially useful therapeutics uh, and then dry MD in particular, ones we desperately need. Um, so the, the sponsors have been very good with, as Jeff mentioned, helping us to um, hone in on what we have deemed essential. So to to make these encounters very efficient uh, and minimize the patient's time in the office, just like we do with our, our standard clinical care, um, we're attempting to do only essentials. And, and the companies know that, and uh, they've made adjustments, as I mentioned before, with amendments to say, okay, yeah, skip the contrast sensitivity, yeah, skip this test or that test, it's not essential uh, this visit or maybe the next visit. Um, so honing in on what's truly essential. And then even skipping a visit, as I mentioned, um, is allowable or acceptable um, in some scenarios. Of course, we make phone calls, we check in with the patients, and these are all accepted things. We're not just flying by the seat of our pants, but this is a dialogue between the, um, our, our center and our personnel and the sponsors with the study. Uh, we want to make sure they know exactly what we're doing. The good news is, you know, I realize that two things. One, I think for a lot of these studies, um, we're going to get the results we're, we're aiming to, to, um, to try to achieve the, the answers to the questions that these studies pose. I don't think there's going to be too much compromise in, um, in the data. Uh, one, because fortunately, this is looking like a relatively brief time where we're talking about one or two skipped visits. Um, two, a lot of these patients are showing up and uh, coming in and getting it. Three, as Charlie mentioned, um, especially for the large-scale studies where the centers are all over the country, uh, parts of the country, of course, aren't being affected as much. If the studies were only in the Northeast, or early on in Seattle, we would have had problems, of course. Um, and um, so uh, the large-scale studies, the phase three studies, I actually think of, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to move in a direction that's, that's um, uh, going to give us the answers we need from the studies. I'm a little concerned about the smaller phase one, phase two studies, uh, especially if they've been in uh, where, where every little uh, deviation in a, in a patient's management, a skip visit, a skipped injection, it could potentially affect uh, what we see in outcomes. Okay. Jeff, maybe some examples from you, what you've seen has benefited your patients. So I think that the, you're talking about in terms of moves to try to make this safer and easier. So I think easier, the first right. thing that patients have really appreciated is all of our staff are in mass and we make sure that all of the patients are in mass as well. So as soon as they come into the building, 
we, whether it's study patients, regular patients, or even our staff, there's always a temperature check right at the start. There's, you have to answer questions as to any symptoms. And then uh, again, using the mass at all times. And the patients see that we're going above and beyond to wipe down every area, to spray every area. And they see it at the end of every exam before they come into the room. So they very much appreciated that. But I think really the timing, you know, study visits, and you know this better than anybody, you've helped design a lot of these, study visits were historically three hours or even longer for many of the more intensive visits. And now we're, we're doing everything we can to get them out closer to an hour. And sometimes it's a little bit longer, sometimes we're able to do it a little bit shorter, but I think they very much appreciate that. As Carl and Charlie have said, the sponsors have really been great working with the study sites in many different ways, minimizing what you need to do, helping to, to prioritize things like the, the car services. Um, some, site, some sponsors have got, actually sent us masks both for our staff and for the patients that have been helpful. So I think those are the key findings and, and our coordinators more so now than ever before, I would say the normal visit, they're spending two and three times as long in advance of the visit, talking to the patients about what steps we're taking, then doing all of the work they can in advance, again, to minimize the time. So when the patient comes in, all of the, the questions, all of the um, outcomes that can be determined just from discussions have all been done. So it's really just minimizing their time in clinic. So Charlie, what, what of these practices do you think will continue say six months to a year from now? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I would echo what, what Jeff um, has said. You know, I think the time commitment on the staff has been tremendous. It's an order of magnitude more than, 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 than what we typically would do. And I think the patient's, deserve it and, and it really is, is necessary to, to maintain um, as much safety and compliance as possible. You know, it goes beyond really our discussion with patients, just what we do in clinic, right? We, we encourage them to take the masks home that we give them and, and use them because many of these patients can't get access to the surgical masks that we have access to. And we encourage them to use them when they go to the grocery store and um, at, uh, we encourage them to, to be safe at home. And so it goes beyond just what we're doing in research. But I think going forward, you know, I think, I think, um, Research, uh, I think it will be changed by this un until there's sort of a clear exit, and that's not going to happen over the next weeks to months. I think it will loosen up and we'll be able to get back to something close to what we were doing. But I think there'll be an emphasis, for example, on sort of, you know, I hate to use the trite word, but transformative therapies versus Me Too treatments, you know, things that really move the field forward. Because if you have a patient and they're already anxious about the last pandemic, they're going to be thinking about the next pandemic. Um, uh, and, and, and the disruptions to their care delivery. So if they can get access to care that can truly change their injection burden, like in a dramatic way, um, I think that that's going to be much more um, exciting for patients than it ever was before, because now they know what it's like to not be able to get access to medical care um, in, a, in a timely fashion. And so I think it will actually accelerate in some ways the transformative things that we have that we're very fortunate to be studying um, as we speak. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to push those forward. 
The other smaller things I think it's going to touch on are, for example, the one doctor, two doctor trials. Um, And I think we need to think more creatively about how to maintain masking with one doctor, right? This archaic system of needing to have two doctors to manage the patient, I think needs to change. I think this is a a great time to think um, prospectively about how to do that. I know some sponsors um, in the middle of phase three trials are trying to figure out how to alleviate that burden. That's a huge burden because sure, if you have two doctors in clinics side by side, that's easy, but most clinics around the country don't run that way routinely. Um, Certainly large medical centers, that's not where most of the patients in our country are seen. They're seen in smaller clinics and many of those smaller clinics do research. And so if we can figure out a way to allow um, you know, triple masking, double masking with a single physician, I think that will, that will help move things forward um, and allow more efficient care delivery in clinical trials. Because right now, a lot of patients end up waiting for that second physician to come to the clinic to get treatment. And so I think that will, that will also help. And the last point I would make is, I think home monitoring um, need, needs to accelerate, certainly from a clinical perspective, but from a research perspective, right? Probably many of the things that we do remotely can and maybe should be done at home, because if they're done at home, they can be done more frequently than just once a month on a clinical visit. So we can figure out a way to assess visual function more holistically. I think the FDA and regulatory agencies would be very open to ideas like that, because certainly a more global perspective of visual function is more important than a single number recorded once every month. Rob, if I could say one thing, Uh, uh, Charlie and Carl have talked about, you know, hopefully getting back to to more of a normal in the, is certainly in the study patients. In Boston, that's not likely to occur quickly. I think our patients are still gonna be missing visits if we don't come up with innovative ways to ensure their safety. I mean, the governor just extended our stay at home to the middle of May, which means we've already, will have been on it more than two months already. And even when that's loosened, our pa- all of the patients in these studies are almost by definition high-risk patients. So it, at least in Boston, I bet we're going to be dealing with these issues for a number of months to come. So Jeff, along the same lines, is your conversation changing on when you're recruiting patients for trials? So, so right now, we're actually not recruiting at all. And it's really unfortunate. There were there were some studies that were close to the end of recruiting and in fact Mm -hmm. had essentially shut down screening because there were so many patients in the queue that they, in a normal world, they were done. And then almost overnight, this stopped. So we had several patients who had screened and this was more again for GA studies, dry AMD studies, but those patients who were screened and eligible dropped out. Just almost all of them dropped out immediately and just said, this is the wrong time for me to start this. And so those studies that were really done, it, it, it stopped almost. And now as sites like Charlie's and, and hopefully Mid-Atlantic and such as some of these really key sites start being back up to a more normal approach, I'm sure they'll be able to start recruiting those again. But it's not going to be as easy as it was. And right now we're not recruiting at all for any studies. Carl, are you recruiting? No, no, uh, exactly the same. Um, And that's probably one of the bigger impacts on the trials is they're going to be drawn out. They're going to be, it's going to take longer 
to, to come to completion for recruitment and then, of course, the results. So we're not, we know we have not recruited any, any new patients in any studies that we've had. And, um, and although studies are coming our way, being proposed, and we're moving forward in essence, uh, we don't anticipate the actual start of those studies for many, many months until we're in a much safer environment, much, much better, more, we'll say more normal uh, environment. And uh, when that is, that's, that's anyone's guess. Um, depends, of course, on the area. I think Charlie's going to be up and running and recruiting probably a lot earlier than, than Jeff, myself, and, and other affected areas, more affected areas. So um, no recruiting at this time. No, it's just, again, these are time-intensive uh, patients, and, and it's a lot of commitment. We, we can manage their wet AMD much more efficiently uh, and much more easily and much safer uh, in essence, in some local office where the patient can get to very easily. Uh, Jeff mentioned something interesting. You know, uh, I heard just recently too that um, this is just a small example of how a company might help. You know, they'll they'll pay for transportation for pay to get a patient to, you know to our to our research site, um, and usually the car drops them off, comes back you know at the end of the day, and uh, picks the patient up. But we've even had some sponsors say, hey, look. We'll pay for the car the whole day, keep them there so that that car is just for that one patient and the wait for them. You know, so again, they've been really accommodating to the patient to make sure the patient is, is safe and uh, feels rest assured. And uh, again, all for the, the, our, our own staff and so forth. So um, it's, we, we're getting by, we're getting by. Uh, things, are, things, are, things are still happening, but new patients know. John, I'm going to turn it back to you for some last questions. Yeah, so really appreciate um, all of those great questions and answers. Uh, just to close on a couple of questions, uh, Jeff, any impact on any of the data that's already been in and is to be presented this year? Do you think there's going to be any delays or any changes in those, those presentations or possible approvals? So I don't think it'll be an impact on the approval because the FDA is, is still busy and is, is still looking at things. And in fact, you could argue that they might even have more time now because they are, they are working, but these studies now are going to be slowed coming in. There are a lot of results that we would anticipate this year that may be a little bit delayed. You might have to extend study time points a little bit. In terms of the studies that have completed and data is being evaluated now or close to that, I think that that type of analysis will still go on. As we know, the conventional meetings are very different now. Um, you know, ASRS is going to have a decision soon as to what they're doing. Retina Society is, is going to go part virtual and then part on demand. Um, Arvo was, you know, that's not happening. There's going to be a virtual component of that. So a lot of these, the meetings are going to get creative in how they're going to do this. And I would envision with big studies, with important outcomes, maybe the meetings will put together a special presentation and a panel discussion. Actually, Charlie was just a very big part of the Vit Buckle Society, which had a, a I think almost 900 people attended that virtual meeting. And so venues like that, where you can have panel discussions with presentation of this, 
in the past, maybe those would have been modestly viewed. I think now those are going to be critically important. And I think the viewership of those will be um, much, much greater than they ever were. Charlie, uh, before you have to sign off, and Charlie has to go to another uh, uh, podcast webinar, uh, what data are you most excited to hear about in 2020? I think the field has a lot of irons in the fire. I think there's a lot of really exciting stuff coming. You know, just, just to put some of them forward, right, you have the, you have the frisimab program attract, attacking another molecule besides VEGF with angiopoietin 2. You have the really exciting gene therapy programs that are both going to have additional data forthcoming um, with, with sort of creating an intraocular biofactory, which I think really is amazingly amazing technology that has a great potential to transform what we do. Fortunately, there's two companies pursuing that at sort of a end of phase one, considering phase two uh, stage at this point. And then you have the port delivery system uh, with, with sort of looking at six month refills and, and, and all three of those sort of shots on goal are going to have additional data, hopefully um, later this year or into early 2021. Um, and I think the timelines of the, of the gene therapy trials are going to be pushed back a little bit, uh, just given the challenges of enrollment that I would echo that Jeff and Carl both said. Um, but, the other, but the other two programs are, are well into their phase three with the, with the phase three trials being projected to, to finish um, uh, th this year or early next year. So I think we are going to have a lot of data. There's always more data to talk about. And I think it's, it's a particularly exciting time in the field as we, as we, as we look to hopefully um, be able to extend these intervals between our clinic patients um, for issues just like this. Well, I, I think there are going to be some permanent changes. Um, uh, a lot of what we do now will spill over into what we do indefinitely. Uh, I doubt I'll ever shake a patient's hand again. Um, and, um, and who knows how long we're going to be wearing masks, you know, maybe until there's some established treatment um, or, um, or a vaccine. Um, in terms of uh, what we do, unfortunately, right now, telemedicine is, is very limited in, in what we can do. Uh, in ophthalmology and in retina in particular. Um, but I think that's changing. Charlie actually made reference to that with regards to clinical trials. And in fact, companies have come to me and say, hey, is there a way we can get the data uh, without the patient having to come in? And that technology is, is gonna be there now. We have to establish it and validate it before we can make it part of an official protocol. But it could very well be that home OCT being on the near horizon, uh, maybe there's going to be ways to get the equivalent um, protocol ETRS visions um, in remote locations or at home even. Uh, these types of technologies, I, th I think, are going to be essential, um, not only for clinical care um, and very helpful uh, to minimize the need of the patient to come to the office. Uh, we've been looking forward to that, but that's going to have direct spillover um, for the clinical trials. There's no doubt about it. Clinical trials are expensive. It's time consuming, it's challenging for patients. Many patients that probably would consider being part of a clinical trial don't because they, want, they don't wanna to travel to a distant location um, once a month for two years and commit to that. But if there are ways to make it easier, it could be more cost effective um, and easier for patients, probably help to recruit patients too, as long as you can get uh, validated data uh, out of both you know, the vision and the diagnostics, what we need um, as critical endpoints in our clinical studies, if we can get it a different way, uh, that's just as good as the way we do it when the patient comes to the office. 
And Jeff, is there any concern about these early um, startup companies in phase one trials having enough money and liquidity to be able to make it through this delay? So I, I, it's a great question. And certainly there are concerns. I know of a number of companies that were, were getting right there ready to start and they put, have to put the brakes on now because they recognize this process of enrollment is going to be an issue. So as, as long as they haven't started the process yet, it's, it's, I won't say it's easy, but it's, it's safer to sit back, watch how this is going, maybe put a little bit more time and effort into your study design and you can think about these things, the changes that COVID will have. So I, I, it's not stopping the small innovative companies, but certainly it, it puts a kink into the process. And do you think that this will drive practices and companies to be more focused with clinical trials? Do you think we'll see fewer clinical trials going forward? And will it be a result of COVID? Or are we just in an era right now where we have a lot of options? Possible yeah, right, options. I, right at the start, I said, I've never seen a, a period so innovative and exciting as we have right now. I mean, we've got multiple agents, you know, Verisimab that we talked about, Conversep, which we'll have results on. We've got drug delivery and the port delivery gene therapy and other approaches that may um, deliver drugs for longer periods. I'm very excited to see the dry AMD outcomes. You know, we've got one study right now looking at in a phase three, we've got another complement inhibitor that's also going to be going into phase three. There's gene therapy looking at dry AMD. So there's a tremendous amount out there right now. There are drugs that are different targets that are going to be looked at, some integrin inhibitors that'll be looked at. So it's a very exciting time. Every time we hit a period where I think, okay, this is where research is gonna slow up, and this is, you know, I remember when the anti-VEGFs came, I thought, well, that's pretty much it, right? It's going to be hard to top that. And yet these companies have tremendous um, researchers with them that constantly come up with new approaches. So, so, no, I think it may take being more creative, as you say. It may take um, having more focused designs, but I don't think it's going to limit the amount of research. I think we're looking at new targets. There's work going on all the time that will help to expand this. Carl, if you could give one bit of advice for the companies sponsoring this research in this environment, what would be the one bit of advice you would give them? Yeah, I think we do need to, to focus more on efficiency and that's going to be the way we can, um, have studies proceed in a timely fashion and be able to recruit the patients that are necessary. So it, it may be sort of tightening the reins a bit in terms of the types of testing that is done and what's done for each encounter and including the number of visits and in, 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 uh, over time for a lot of these patients. In other words, do what is absolutely necessary. It's just like we're doing in practice right now. Do what is absolutely necessary to get the results, whether it be the clinical care results or the clinical trial results um, and, um, and ultimately it's going to make these things more cost, cost effective or cost efficient really. Um, and so, 
um, there's going to be some good in essence that comes out of it for that reason. Uh, but I think we're going to continue to move along. I think there's going to be still great innovation. Um, I think it's it, we're, we're in a real slowdown period, uh, of course, with recruiting and existing studies and starting up new studies. And uh, But I think we'll get over that. It's just a matter of time. And I think we were hoping it was going to be three months, but realistically, it could be six or more uh, before things are really sort of starting to to happen and move along. But um, I would say, you know, hang in there, but really think carefully about when design of the protocols, exactly what needs to be done and what's not. You know, do we need contrast sensitivity? Do we need all these other ancillary tests with secondary outcomes? Probably not. Probably not. Enough, you know, minimize that exploratory aspect of the clinical trials. And, um, and I, th I think we will find some good that comes out of all this. And, you know, it and does, how much it, of that? Go ahead, Jeff. It does. There's such an um, amazing number of fascinating approaches right now. And I know Carl and Charlie and I were in the same position that just prior to COVID, I would say we were turning down more offers to be in studies than we were accepting. And that was very unique. I don't remember a period like that ever where we would be turning down so many studies just because we each have only so many patients and so many clinical assets. You know, our coordinators are incredibly important and, and valuable, and we didn't want to overburden them and make it to where they couldn't get all their work done. So there's that part we're going to be more selective. And how much of that, Carl, uh, of those data points like contrast sensitivity and you know, quality of life scores falls on the FDA and how much of it falls on the pharmaceutical companies? Well, it is a, a, a two-way negotiation there. And, um, and so I think sometimes companies will propose exploratory types of uh, testing and looking at endpoints to try to differentiate the drug. And that, that could be valid and may be important. Um, and some of it, of course, the FDA uh, might want to mandate uh, in certain, for certain therapeutics under certain situations. Um, so that dialogue has to happen. And I think the FDA is going to be receptive to this. We're all living this together. And um, they have to understand that uh, you know, these trials need to move along. And um, we need to be able to recruit these patients in a timely fashion. So we have to make it as easy as possible and try to minimize um, a, a lot of what is now taking place that may not be necessary. And Jeff, last question, what do patients need to know? What would you tell patients uh, at this time? So the patients usually enter studies because they're highly motivated as, as Carl and Charlie alluded to. I would tell them that they need to be comfortable being in the study. We tell them that anyway, right? We say, look, there's, there is a commitment here in in time and effort, that's quite significant. And that may even be more so a concern now. So we make sure to let patients know we still believe these are critically important to advancing our treatments, but we prioritize their safety in all of these. And I think that's been true of the sites. It's true of the sponsors. It's true of the FDA. And so we all put that as, as priority number one. And it's just important to make the patients understand what those steps are and, and what those priorities are. But 
for many of these diseases, they're going to have to get treated no matter what. And so the studies offer them opportunities to receive certain treatments that they wouldn't normally be able to get. And for a lot of patients, that's really the interesting thing is to have as much firepower as possible to treat their disease. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, thank you, Namrata, my co-host, and thank you to Carl, uh, Jeff, and Charlie for being on new Retina Radio uh, COVID-19 uh, clinical trials, should we proceed. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And tune in next Tuesday for another broadcast. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmar Communications LLC, herein BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.